This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. Welcome back to Case Closed. Again, another hour of golden age radio crime for you today. We begin with Let George Do It. We'll hear his episode from May 30th, 1949, titled A Matter of Doubt. Then we fast forward 20 years to October 2nd, 1969, for Murder in the Bag, an episode from the epic casebook. Standard of California, on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West, invites you to Let George Do It. A Matter of Doubt, Another Adventure of George Valentine. Personal notice, dangerous my stock and trade. If you're in a tight squeeze and crying uncle won't get you out, you got a job for me, George Valentine. Write full details. Dear Mr. Valentine, recently my young son Stephen has been hurt twice and what he insists were just accidents. It's true they were the kind of things that might have happened to any active youngster, but I refuse to accept that explanation. And I believe all this goes back to the time Stephen told a fantastic story to the police about an altogether different matter. It's It's this this very story story that that keeps them from believing what I suspect now, that something terrible is happening to my son. I'm sure if you'll let me talk to you, you'll realize I'm not just imagining things. And it's signed, Eleanor Rollins. Uh Uh-huh. Regis Park. That new development for XGIs out in the new lots section. That's right, George. I wonder why Mrs. Rollins wasn't more specific about... About the clash Stephen had with the police? Yeah. Frankly, Angel, I think this whole thing is nothing more than the overstimulated fear that every mother has for her young ones. Oh, maybe you're right. Why don't you do the easiest and obvious thing? Uh Huh? Call Lieutenant Riley and find out what trouble Stevens had with the police. Go ahead. (laughs) And that's the last thing in the world you want me to do, isn't it, Brooksy? Oh, I didn't say anything. No, but the way you didn't say it. I simply meant... Well, since we've gone this far, let me go on reading your mind. You being a woman can tell the mother isn't just clucking like a hen. After all, I am a potential mother myself. And if I do decide to look into this hazy hassle, I should get all the dough firsthand from Mrs. Rollins herself. I don't want you to feel I'm talking you into this, George. Oh, no, 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 nothing like that. Come on, grab that undernourished garden you call a hat, and let's get going, potential mother. Mr. Valentine, that's the story exactly the way Stephen told it to the police. Isn't it, Stephen? I haven't anything else to say, Mom. What am I going to do with him, Mr. Valentine? Make him explain why he told a story like that. Well, you're certainly not going to do it by raising your voice, Mrs. Rollins. That's right. And come on, sit down. Yes, I... I guess I'd better. The fact remains. Stephen said he was on his way home from school. Cutting across the fields, he saw a man who'd been shot. He told me he made a bandage to stop the bleeding. Then ran a couple of blocks to a service station to call the police. Mm -hmm. And when they came, he reversed himself and told them he made it all up. I know my boy better than that. He doesn't lie. He doesn't make things up. Not to me. Mother and the son couldn't be closer than we are. It's, it's just the two of us. 
Stephen's not just another boy. He thinks like a man. Maybe you've had me pegged wrong, Mom. Like the cops say I read too many comic books. I, I just want a little excitement. But Steve, when the squad car came, you were caught running away. You put yourself right on the spot by saying you made it all up. Now, why? You look like you're a smarter boy than that. That's how it is. You just can't get anything out of him. Well, all right, kids, you've got us all on the run. Now, I'm not asking you to tell us in so many words what's behind this, but you can at least shake your head yes or no. You can do that for a fella, can't you? Well, did something happen to you that day that made you so scared you can't talk? Didn't those accidents you told your mother about have something to do with what happened to you that day? You lied when you said Chuck Foster beat you up. Tried to horn in on my paper, Rob. But your mother checked, and Chuck said he had nothing to do with it. And just another boy couldn't have worked you over like that, Steve. And you didn't break your wrist slipping down into that ravine. Why, you've been coming home that way for the last two years. You couldn't be that careless. That's the way it happened. It's no use. It's no use. Um... Look, ladies, would you mind leaving me alone with Steve? Uh, just for a few minutes, uh, Claire. Oh, yes, George. Mrs. Rollins, I think you and I can do with a good cup of coffee. Let's go in the kitchen. You fellas join us when you're ready, huh? Well, Steve, that was pretty quick thinking, being able to fix up a man's wound when you found him bleeding like that. I keep telling you that never happened. Oh, but if it did happen, you, you could have done a good job. After all, you're a Boy Scout, and you won your first aid badge. Your mother told me all about it, how proud you were of it. That doesn't prove anything. Oh, maybe not. See, how about this newspaper route you got? Business good? Good enough. <laughs> good enough to bring a little something into the house each week to help your mother? Well, I don't know what you're driving at. Well, I'm driving at this, Steve. You're not the kind of kid who lies and gets himself into a mess like this with the cops. That I'm sold on. Look. Look, now that we got rid of the gals, we can talk sort of man to man. Steve, tell me, just what's going on in your mind? Come on, now, open up. What are you thinking about? You did the best you could, Sonny. You can't... can't patch me up. Just remember, San Diego, Mercantile Trust, Red Kenzie. He... he got me. Remember. Didn't you hear me, Steve? Uh, what? Why were you running away when the cops picked you up? Why were you putting on an act? Didn't think I'd still be alive when you come back, eh, kid? You did a better job than you thought. Now listen. Forget everything I said before. If you'll say a word to anybody... I'll get your mother. Get your mother. Remember. Come on, shake out of it, Steve. Don't stare at me like that when I'm talking to you. I'm not telling you anything. Get that straight. Look, don't you see? You've got to get it off your chest, son. Your mother believes in you. You've got to do it for her sake if you're in any kind of trouble. Yeah, for her sake. This man you helped, did he give you that beating you blamed on Chuck? Why did he do it? was no man. Okay, okay. How about accident number two? Who gave you the assist that sent you to the bottom of that ravine so that you needed a doctor to take care of you? Now think about that a minute before you end. Come on, pick yourself up, kid. You're gonna get worse than this if you don't talk. 
I'm the guy who messed up the job killing that rat you found. Me. Red Kenzie. Why'd you lie to the cops? Where's he hiding out? Better come clean. Now you got both of us on your tail. Okay, Steve, okay. I see you'd rather die than say anything. And maybe you think you got your own good reason. Yeah. Get your mother. Get your mother. Well, Steve, you're going to find out that I can be a pretty stubborn character, too. Valentine, you can't say I'm not cooperative. You ask for information on the capers of that kid, Steve Rollins, and I got it for you. Here. Thanks, Lieutenant Rowling. Hmm. Well, not much I didn't know before. Nothing we didn't know before. Just that he called and faked a story about finding a man shot in the neck on New Lot Road. My good, good friends, I'm sorry I can't enlarge on the kid's antics just to please you. He got off flight as it was, playing games like that with the police. Okay, Riley, okay, take it easy, will you? This wasn't meant to be an invitation to apoplexy. Yeah. How about those accidents? You just answered your own question, Miss Brooks. They were just accidents. Accidents and a jittery mother who's imagining a lot of boogeymen out to harm her little chick. Lieutenant, did it ever occur to you that mothers have a certain instinct about such things? And did it ever occur to you that I ought to know something about mothers, having had one myself? From the way you act, you'd think Mrs. Rollins was just put on earth to keep your colleagues from enjoying their pinochle in their various precinct stations. Is that so? Well, let me whoa, tell you whoa, that whoa, I... Oh, no, let's break this up. Huh. Oh, yeah? Huh. Say, what's going on here anyway, Valentine? Why has your girlfriend suddenly decided to swarm all over oh, look, me? Riley, you touched a sore point with Brooksy, implying even the slightest fault in a mother. Who? Who, me? Well, there are only the three of us here. And I've learned by experience to keep my mouth shut on the subject. Why, I'm the staunchest defender motherhood ever had. Why, when I hear Mammy sung on the radio, I'm no good for days. Your sarcasm has all the grace of an elephant with a sprained ankle. Hey, look, kids, time out. Lest we forget one Stephen Rollins. Yeah, I wish I was allowed to forget him. Riley, I know a scared kid when I see one. I'm convinced there was a man that day, and Steve was handed a load of dynamite he's too young to know how to handle. Well, if that's what you think, there's nothing I can do about Granted. it. Granted. But if I can find something that seems to confirm what I believe, would you hop on the wagon with me? Well, you know better than that. Of course I will. Good. Okay, come on, Brooksy. We got to get back to Regis Park. Surely now the police will believe you, Mr. Valentine. The car deliberately tried to run Stephen down. When did this happen, Mr. Just about an hour ago when he was coming home from school. Would you recognize the car if you saw it again, Stephen? No, Miss Brooks. I wasn't looking where I was going. It was just an accident. Mom's just imagining things. Mr. Crawford, the druggist, happened to be looking out of his window. He says the automobile kept coming right at you. You had all you could do to get out of the way. It's nothing to worry about. I only got a scrape in the out of it. These accidents keep happening to you, Steve, and even faster now. Still, you're holding back. I'm just telling you what happened, Mr. Valentine. So afraid. I'm so afraid. Come on, don't. Hey, Steve, look. The reason I dropped by was to see if you'd take a walk with me over to New Lots Road. But the whole thing started. You think you're up to it? You don't need me. The police told you where they found me. Um, please. Be honest, Mr. Valentine. Do as he says. He's trying to help you. You were running away when the squad car picked you up. 
Now, I want to know the exact spot where you found that man. What man? Well, Steve, I guess you win this round, too. We'll just have to see how far we can get without you. See, if the man was so seriously wounded, it stands to reason there had to be some sign of violence on the scene. Lucky we didn't have any rain the last couple of weeks. Yeah, but George, hmm? we're a good block away from New Lots Road and Downey Boulevard where they picked up Steve. I know, Angel, I know. The man probably was lying in all this tall grass and couldn't be seen from the road. But Steve would be cutting across these fields on his way home from school. Yeah, I see what you mean. From school. Like any other day, minding his own business. And walking into something like this, whatever it is. Huh? Just like we've walked into something. Hey, hey that looks like a part of a man's shirt. The collar of a man's shirt, blood on it. Of course, he was shot in the neck. Stephen must have torn the collar off so he could get to the wound. Well, this didn't come from any dollar ninety-eight job either. It's part of a silk twenty-dollar creation. How our Mister X is somebody in the chips. Oh, too bad we don't have the rest of the shirt. One like that usually sports a monogram over the left-hand pocket. Well, anyway, it sports a label. Jonathan's. That's the shop where they look down their noses if your bill runs under $200. No question about how fast we have to work now. No, Brooksy. Every minute we don't find the answer to all this is another minute Steve's life is worth under two cents. Return to tonight's adventure of George Valentine in just a moment. In an average day's driving, how many times do you think you cut the ignition, park for a while, and then start out again? If you say ten times, then let me tell you how to be sure of ten fast starts. Just switch to that great Chevron Supreme gasoline. It's specially blended to give faster starts and faster warm-ups. So you're off to a good start every time you press the starter. Chevron Supreme gives your car new alertness in traffic, too. Gives ping-free power that lifts you over the hills. In fact, for today's high-compression engines, you can't buy a better gasoline. Another thing, premium-quality Chevron Supreme is climate-tailored. Tailored to the season and to the west, different temperature and altitude zones. So wherever you drive, go on Chevron Supreme, and you'll agree it gets the best out of your car. Ask for it at standard stations and at independent Chevron gas stations where they say and mean we take better care of your car. Young Steve Rollins saves a man's life and hears a few disjointed words gasped out in pain, something about a San Diego bank robbery and a name, Red Kenzie. But if he reveals any of this, he knows what will happen. You tell anything you heard, kid, and I'll get your mother. Remember... But then the aforesaid Red Kenzie also puts his sentence of death over the boy if he doesn't repeat every word he heard. This is the squeeze you don't know a thing about as you try to find the reason for the series of strange accidents that have been happening to the youngster. In fact, all you do have is a single clue, the blood-stained collar of a man's shirt. 
And like George Valentine, you try to make the most of it. Hotchkiss? Uh, yes, uh, yes, indeed. I happen to be interested in shirts. Well, you certainly come to the right person. I wouldn't be the head of this department here at Jonathan's if I didn't know the importance of this shirt to the man. Oh, Mr. Valentine agrees with you so completely. He wouldn't think of going out in the morning without putting one on. Exactly, but I... Uh, uh, oh, I see. Uh, uh, the fact is, I'm very anxious to locate a friend who bought a shirt here some time ago. Maybe you can help me. Always glad to cooperate. That's our motto here at Jonathan's, you know. Caveat emptor. That's Latin. The customer is always right. I do hope that when your friend mentioned our shirts, he had nothing but praise for them. Mm, yes, except for one small item. What did you say? A flaw in one of our shirts? A Jonathan shirt? Well, uh, Mr. Hotchkiss, it seems they pick up stains so easily, especially around the collar. Hey, I'll take a look. Oh. oh, please don't faint, Mr. Hotchkiss. It's only blood. <laughs> Hold on to the counter, friend. Just think of it as red ink, and you'll pull through this like a hero right out of Rudyard Kipper. Yes, sir. You're, you're so right, sir. I, I'll try to be strong. Now, uh, just how can I help you? Okay, any chance of you remembering the man you sold this shirt to? Uh, just from this, uh, this collar? Well, I know it'd be a small miracle if you had an answer, but still, that's what I gotta know. A boy's life depends on it. I'm sorry, but we sell dozens of shirts with a collar like this every week. Well, look at it carefully. Something may occur to you. Something to make you remember who bought it. Uh, no, no, miss. I'm afraid there's nothing I can tell you. Okay. Well, Brooksy, that's a gold star forever in any way. Thanks just the same, Mr. Hotchkiss. Right you are. Oh, oh uh, one moment. Huh? Yeah. Uh, Jonathan's never puts the size of the shirt on the collar to plebeian, you know. But I can tell at a glance, this is the smallest size we sell, size 14 next. Well, what about it? Well, the man who wears this size would have to be of a very small stature indeed. Yeah, yeah, but can you remember such a man? Uh, of course, there were several 14s in the last month or two, but, but one man does seem to stand out from the other. Yeah. Oh, give, Mr. Hotchkiss, give. Is there a sales check on record, his, his name or address? No, no, young lady. He merely pointed to the shirts he wanted and paid for them in cash. I thought it was a bit odd. Well, could you recognize him if you saw him again? He was a small, dark-eyed, uh, ferrety gentleman. Not at all like our usual clientele here at Jonathan. Breeding, you know. Still, I doubt if I could be sure about the identification. Does that help at all? Buster, we're fighting against time. Anything might help. That's most gratifying indeed. Brooksy, remind me to send this gentleman a shirt for Christmas. Hey, Angel, go over to the window and let us know when Steve turns into the block. Okay, Lieutenant Riley, are you sure nothing can happen to my boy while he's out to the store? Not unless I have a very dumb flat foot shadowing him. And I haven't, Mrs. Rollins. When Valentine told me about finding that collar, I made up my mind. If it's the last thing I do, nothing else is going to happen to Steve. Besides, we had to get him out of the house to the bakery for a while so we could set up this plan of mine. Yes. Now, uh, now are you sure you still want Valentine to go through with it? Do you think there can be any question? For weeks, I've been frantic about whether Steve would come home alive. This has got to stop now. He can't go around with a bodyguard the rest of his life. No matter what Mr. Valentine has to do to trick Stephen into telling us who's threatening him, it has to be done. Well, I realize it's a drastic step we're taking, Lieutenant, but, well, I'd like to avoid it, but 
You think there's any chance of us going through the files and finding someone like this small, dark-eyed, ferrety individual? No. No, not a chance. Any harness bull can name me a dozen bookies and pool room sharks that would fit that description. Yeah, I guess so. Well, nothing to do but wait now. No sign of him yet. The squad car's here. All right, now look. As soon as the boy gets in sight, the empty ambulance will streak back to town, and I'll go out and hop in the squad car with the boys. Oh, it's so hard to understand, Mr. Valentine. Why, my own son wouldn't confide in me no matter what trouble he was in. Look, I tried to tell you, Mrs. Rollins. If Steve refused to talk, it was not because he was afraid for himself. But for the only other person in the world who he cares a thing about. You, his mother. Oh, Steve. And that's the way I figured it. That's the way I'm playing it now. With Lieutenant Riley making it possible. George, come here, quick. Yeah, what is it, Brooksy? Steve? No. That car just going around the corner. Well? I thought it was funny the way it was parked there, and the man at the wheel staring at this house. What about it, Miss Brooks? Well, he didn't stick around a second after the squad car showed up. The driver? Anything like the description Hotchkiss gave us? No, just the opposite, George. Almost took up the whole front seat. Oh, great, great. That's all we need. Another interested party pops into the picture. Wait a minute, Lieutenant. Hmm? Here comes Stephen now. Okay, Riley, give the ambulance a nod. Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. Make sure Mrs. Rollins stays away from the window. Yeah, don't worry about that. Now, I'll beat it out the side door and the rest is up to you, Valentine. Yeah, and that makes me feel just swell. Oh, Steve, just a minute. I, I want to talk to you. What is it, Mr. Valentine? What happened? What's the matter? Now look, don't fly off the handle, kid. Why are you talking to me this way? Tell me. You're not giving me a chance. I'm not blind. I just saw that ambulance drive away. I know, Steve. I, I know. And the police car in front of our house. What's it doing there? Well, I was coming to that. You don't have to bother. Something happened to my mother, and they just took her away. That's it, isn't it? If you'll just hold it a minute, son. I did everything that man told me to. Kept my mouth shut. But that wasn't enough for him. He hurt my mother anyway. Is my mother... No, she'll be all right. But who is this person you're talking about, Steve? Now, you got to tell me. We have to work fast. No, I'm not going to tell you anything. I've got some place to go. Look, Steve, you've got to tell me. I'm tired of being a good boy with marbles. Now I'm going to be a bad boy with a knife. Hey, wait a minute. Come back here, you're crazy. You're not going to stop me. Nobody is. What is it, George? What happened? Oh, the kid threw me a curve a mile wide. Instead of telling me the name of the guy with a punctured neck, he's on his way to take care of things himself. We've got to stop him. Come on, hurry, Brooksy. Get in the car. You take the wheel. Yeah, but... Take it slow and make sure you keep Steve in sight. Obviously, he knows where our man lives. Okay. Hey, Valentine, what's up? Uh, No time to explain, Riley. Just follow us. Must be the street, George. Steve's blowing up. Yeah. Hibiscus Drive. Fine name for a street line with nothing but run-down rooming houses. One looks the same as another. Uh-huh. Number 21. 23. Okay. George! Just want to be ready, Angel. The moment he picks out the house, I gotta be right on top of him so I can take it from there. Number 31. Slower, Brooks. I wouldn't be surprised if this is where Steve got the beating. That's why he knows where he's going. George, look, this is it. Yeah. That's all for you, Steve. What? I, I told now you. Now go over there and stay with Miss Brooks. Down, down, stupid Steve. Let go of me, Mr. Valentine. Now, what's the guy's name so I can go in there and get him? I don't know. I just call him the Weezer because the way he talks, I. Hey, that man running in the house. Yes, Steve? That's the other man, Red Kenzie. He tried to make me tell about the weasel. Okay, let him get in the house. This looks like more fireworks. 
It is Riley now. George, that man who just went in, he was the one in the car in front of Mrs. Rollins. Oh, Brooksy, you should have stayed where you were. The guy inside wants to shoot it out. Oh. Mr. George Valentine. Yeah, Rollins. Yeah, Riley. Uh, Sergeant, keep the people off the street and take care of these two. Okay, Lieutenant. Come on, Riley, let's go. Will you make it snappy, lady? What room's this guy better down in? Now, how, how can I tell you, mister, if you don't even know the name of the tenant you're looking for? Uh, what's the answer to that one? Well, he's going to be a small, skinny runt, dark eyes. Probably looks like the really ratty is. Oh, yeah, I know who you mean, the man in room six. Hey, Riley, somebody got his. Oh, one less to worry about. You can drop that arsenal now, brother. Can I give out a Kenzie? No. No, no, hero stuff for me against a raft of cops. That's smart. Even if it isn't going to change your destination. Well, this guy here is cold turkey. <laughs> That's the way I should have been a couple of weeks ago when they plugged him. And left him in that field out there in Regis Park. What kind of game were you kids playing anyway? What were you trying to get out of him? About 200,000 bucks we got from the San Diego bank. They supposed to meet me later. But he double-crossed me. He got all of it stashed somewhere. Sure, sure, the San Diego job. We've had you on the pickup list for that deal. And that must be Mitchell. I would have let that punk live. He'd have told me where he hid the dough. He just stood there flapping his mouth with no words coming out. You know, Kenzie, you're going to get the business because of a dirty trick you played on yourself. <laughs> what are you bleating about? Just this. Your friend here was trying to tell you... But he couldn't make with the words. You forget. You shot him through the neck. Yes, Mr. Valentine. It was Kenzie who pushed me down with Selvin's gulch. And I recognized the wheeze when he tried to run me down today. <laughs> they really had you between and betwixt, didn't they? Yeah, and I don't know what I'd have done if it weren't for you and Miss Brooks. But I just couldn't let anything happen to Mom. Well, looking back on it now, Steve, don't you think you should have confided in your mother? She would have found an answer. That's what mothers are for. Cornies, it sometimes sounds mothers do know best. Sure, uh, I, uh, I think I'd better warn you, Buster. You're going to be on the losing end of this argument. You're tangling with an authority on that particular subject. Huh? Don't listen to him, Steve. Mr. Valentine is just <laughs> trying to be funny. Oh. Yeah, don't you listen to her. She's just trying to blacken my character. Oh. Steve... All you ever need to know about mothers, you'll learn from that lady up there on the porch. Go on, scram, kid. Don't keep your mom waiting. Ask a woman driver what she knows about motor oil for her car, and chances are she'll say, not very much, really. But when she uses RPM motor oil, don't be surprised to hear her say, I do know that RPM helps the family budget. And that's because the complete protection your car gets with RPM means a cleaner engine, fewer repair bills. Special compounds in RPM prevent the formation of gummy carbon and lacquer deposits. They fight off rust and corrosion by making the oil adhere to every inch of internal metal. That means protection for upper cylinder walls, the hot spots left bare and exposed to wear by ordinary motor oils. Even when you've parked your car, 
The adhering agent in RPM keeps a rust-proofing film of oil on vertical engine parts, usually drained bare. The economy of RPM is another reason why it's first choice in the West. Better get RPM tomorrow. Get it at independent Chevron gas stations and at standard stations where they say and mean we take better care of your car. Next week, when we catch up with George Valentine as he is doing a little investigating at a mother low town, we'll hear him saying... Hey, now look, Sheriff, isn't there something you can tell us about this case? Hey, come on, Sheriff. George, I think he's going to... I've got him, Brooksy. Mr. Stevens, anybody, get a doctor, quick! It won't do much good, Brooksy. What? The Sheriff seems to have had too much to drink. Too much poison. Tonight's adventure of George Valentine has been brought to you by Standard of California on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and Standard stations throughout the West. Robert Bailey is starred as George with Francis Robinson as Claire. Wally Mayer appears as Lieutenant Riley. Let George Do It is written by David Victor and Herbert Little Jr. and directed by Don Clark. Also heard in the cast were Virginia Gregg as Mrs. Rollins, Jeffrey Silver as Stephen, Herbert Litton as Kinsey, and Bob Griffin as Hotchkiss. The music is composed and presented by Eddie Dunstetter, your announcer, John Heaston. Listen again next week, same time, same station, to Let George Do It. This is the Mutual Don Lee Broadcasting System. Makers of epic pure sunflower oil, purine and pret cooking fat, yum yum peanut butter, maple margarine, and niblet's cheese twists present the epic casebook. In which Inspector Carr investigates. Good evening. The other day, I attended a neighbor's party given for their teenage daughter. And they decided to make me sing for my supper. At first, we played a straightforward game of charades. And then, with knowing glances at each other, the de Villiers family shouted in unison, let's play cops and robbers. <laughs> Actually, it proved a salutary exercise because we changed it from cops and robbers to the investigation of a hypothetical murder. And very soon, I was explaining to the guests the sequence of such investigations, pointing out that when it's not obvious, we first have to determine method. In other words, how the murderer killed his victim. And then comes another M, the second. It's for motive. You've all noticed how important that is in any investigation. Who stood to gain most by the victim's death? Was it an act of revenge, frustrated passion? 
But both these M's, if you like, are irrevocably linked with the most important M of all. Yes, of course, the murderer himself. Now, that seems to be stressing the obvious, yet a good detective will not only concern himself with the identity of the killer, but will want to know every characteristic the culprit possesses. So you see, all these factors are interdependent. However, I explained to my friends and their guests that unless one is on one's guard, an overabundance of motives or a seeming confusion as to method can result in the final analysis in the concealing and not the revealing of the third M, the murderer. In fact, that's what happened to me in the story I'm about to tell you tonight, which I've called Murder in the Bag. I've never understood why authors specializing in crime stories find it necessary to paint word pictures of country policemen in grotesque colors. I suppose describing them as buffoons highlights the brilliance of the author's central character, the man who succeeds where the police have failed. They should have met Sergeant Barnes in charge of the Dewhurst police station. I've got all the facts and statements for you, sir. Thanks, Sergeant. All I got from operations was the fact that a farmer called Ferguson was murdered last night when he was returning from a party in the company of a Mr. Flynn. Time about midnight. It was right, sir. Hmm? It was Mr. Flynn who telephoned for the ambulance, sir. But Ferguson was dead by the time he got to the hospital. Ferguson was shot, correct? Yeah, correct, sir. All right, Sergeant. Let's have it all. Uh, by all, I mean, uh, I think you'd better set the scene for me. I see you've drawn me a map. Sure. Uh, if you'd please set it for me verbally, I'd be grateful. <laughs> It'll save time, too. More than that, I want all the characters concerned. Can do? Well, I never try, sir. Well, um, let us start with a small church just beyond the village, on the way to Chipping Sudbury. Right. Now, just beyond it, separated from the churchyard by a narrow lane... There's an old farmhouse, and as you walk up the lane from the gate, there's a hedge on each side. Now, the left side bounds the churchyard, and the right side encloses a field that's owned by Dick Spence. Yeah. At the top, the lane turns sharp right behind the field, and a hundred yards further on is the farmhouse, a greystone farm that's owned by the late Tom Ferguson. You're doing fine, Sergeant. Uh, Ferguson's the man who was shot here. Yes, that's right, sir. There are two other occupants of greystone... Mrs. Vera Hammond and her son, Robert, 20. Now, she was a Ferguson before she married. Tom is, well, was her nephew. The farm had originally belonged to her brother, but when he died, Tom inherited it. And what about Mrs. Hammond? He left her there a penny. Widow. She moved in with her son. That's Robert. Has she been there ever since? Mm-hmm. Had Tom Ferguson any girlfriends? Yes, named Evelyn Todd. From a neighboring farm, 20-year-old redhead. In fact, they were engaged to be married. I see. They would have made Greyston their home. And Mrs. Hammond would have had to have left, right? That's right, sir. Oh, well, let's get on with what happened last night. Well, sir, Ferguson left Greyston about half past six to visit his fiancée. There was a party of some sort at Todd's farm. Robert was invited, but he didn't go. 
The party broke up about midnight, and Tom walked a half mile back in the company of Ted Flynn, one of his close friends. Now, when they reached the gate to the entrance to the lane, they said goodnight to each other, and Ted continued on down the road. Now, he just got round the corner, and a, and a shot rang out. Double back, and he found Tom Ferguson lying unconscious in the road. He phoned for an ambulance from the church, which arrived together with Dr. Ritchie and Sergeant Tracy. As you know, sir, by the time Ferguson reached the hospital, he was dead. No of you questions, Sergeant? No, only Flynn gave a first-hand account of what had happened. Have you the necessary search warrant? Yes, I got it right here, sir. Good. I think I'll call on Miss Evelyn Todd for a start. I'd like to know a little more about Tom Ferguson before I tackle the Hammonds. Oh, by the way, uh, they know about Ferguson's death, huh? Uh, yes, Inspector. Uh, they were informed first thing this morning. Fine. Let's go to Todd Farm. Sergeant Barnes and I drove to Todd Farm, which lay just beyond Greyston. As we passed the homestead of the late Mr. Ferguson, I couldn't help being struck by its bleak contrast to the surrounding countryside. The farmhouse stood gaunt, forbidding. Its dark, shuttered windows seemed to enclose a multitude of secrets. On the other hand, Todd Farm proved to be a charming cottage, nestling in an old English rose garden, flanked on both sides by orchards. The door was opened by a young girl with a wealth of flaming red hair. She would have been quite beautiful, but for the dark rings under her eyes, the only outward evidence of her grief. Can I help you? Oh, oh hello, Sergeant. I'm sorry Tom. to disturb you. Uh, Miss Evelyn Todd? That's right. My name's Inspector Carr, New Scotland Yard. Can we come in for a moment? Well, well, my father's item. I'm afraid there's no one at home. I'd just like to talk to you a little, Miss Todd, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, well, well, please come inside. Thank you. Now, what can I do for you? Is it about Tom? Yes. Oh, I don't think I could bear it. Look, I quite understand. I won't keep you long. Just a few questions, then we'll go. Very well. Well, first of all, what time did you last see your fiancé alive, Miss Todd? At about quarter to twelve. He, he left with Ted Flynn. Were they the last to leave the party? Just about. The Elliots were still there. They're friends of my father's. Mm. They left about half an hour afterwards. That was the last time you saw your fiancé? Are these questions necessary? I'm afraid so, Miss Todd. Now, tell me, how well did you know the Hammonds? Well enough. Perhaps too well. What do you mean? I'll be frank with you, Inspector. Mrs. Hammond did everything she could to prevent my engagement to her nephew. Prevent? How? I suppose it wasn't very pleasant for a woman twice my age to be ousted from her home by a mere chit of a girl. That's how she describes me. But she chose a rather mean way of showing her feelings. Inspector, for the last three months, I've been deluged with poison pen cards, all in the same handwriting. After a while, I showed one to Tom. He recognized the handwriting immediately. His aunt, Mrs. Hammond, wrote it. Have you kept any of these postcards? How many do you want? Twenty? Thirty? They're all on the desk here. There you are. Take your pick. Hmm. Well, these will do. Thank you, Miss Todd. Now, uh, what were your fiancé's reactions? He was absolutely furious. He and his aunt had a terrible row. And did the cards stop? For a while, yes. But they started coming again about a week before... 
All right, Mr. Todd, I won't keep you much longer. Are there any other incidents that you can recall about Mrs. Hammond? No, I, I don't think so. Oh, oh, wait a bit, yes. It was only yesterday afternoon. Robert, oh, Mrs. Hammond's son, came over to say that he couldn't come to the party. Did he give any reason? Yes. His charming mother had forbidden him to come. I'm sorry, but Mum's in an awful mood. We had a bit of a row, actually. Oh, Robert. I said she couldn't stop me, and then she went in a long tirade about how she'd worked her fingers to the bone for me, put me through school, and just when everything was turning out okay, you, well... Go on. Well, she said that you and Tom were about to kick us out, that you schemed the whole thing between you, and it was a dirty trick. I'm sorry. You know I don't... I know. Why don't you come anyway? I can't. I wish I could, Eve. You know. I'd do anything for you, but it isn't worth it. I've got to live with her. All right, Bobby. I understand. He was almost in tears. Inspector, she's a wicked woman. If, if it hadn't been for her... Thank you, Miss Todd. I think that's all. Accompanied by Sergeant Barnes, I made for the scene of the crime. We reached the gate that stood at the entrance of the lane, and Sergeant Barnes pointed out the spot marked X. Uh, uh, there you are, sir. Uh, you collapsed just here at the foot of the left gate post. Uh-huh. How many shots were fired? Uh, just the one, sir. The surgeon reported that Ferguson died of gunshot wounds in the abdomen. Yes, that's right, sir. Well, let's reconstruct the scene, Sergeant. Now, Ferguson says good night to Flynn. He turns towards the gate, and a shot rings out. So it's hardly unlikely that he was shot from the road itself. That's right, sir. Now, if he was found by the left-hand post, it stands to reason that he couldn't have been shot from the area of the churchyard. The angle's too acute. No, my guess is that he was shot from the other side, from, from that field to the right. Uh, Dick Spencer's field. Sergeant, supposing you wanted to ambush a man at dead of night, knowing that he was coming from the direction of Todd's farm... Well, I'd... I'd whip in at expenses for you, no doubt about that. And? Well, I reckon I'd hide behind the edge. That way I wouldn't be seen. Yeah, but the hedge is at least two feet thick. Uh, then I'd cut a hole in it, sir. Elementary, my dear Barnes. Right, let's see if there is one. Uh, mind the bank, sir, it's slippery. Oh, yes, it is. Had rain recently. A couple of days ago, sir, it come down in buckets. None last night, there. No, sir, no. Hello, hello, hello. What have we here? What's that, sir? Uh, the cartridge case. I'll wager my non-existent bowler hat. It was fired from a single-barreled shotgun. Looks like it, Inspector. I put in my handkerchief. There it is, Sergeant. The hole in the hedge. Well, I've... It's obviously been made for a purpose. Let's have a look. <laughs> Perfect. See for yourself. You're right, sir. I can see the gate clearly. The road beyond. Why, look here, sir. The grass has been crushed. And here, sir, there's skid marks. The killer probably lost his footing. As Sergeant Barnes pointed to the telltale evidence, a vivid picture began to form in my mind. The murderer waiting grimly for Ferguson's return, the glinting gun barrel pointing through the hole in the hedge, the finger poised on the trigger, and then, 
As the intended victim opens the gate, the fatal squeeze. It seems that a visit to Mrs. Hammond would prove illuminating. Don't see how I can help you, Inspector. It won't take up much of your time, Mrs. Hammond. Have you ever seen these postcards before? No. Let me see. Um, no. How appalling. Evelyn Todd says they were written by you. Well, they're lying. Mrs. Hammond, it won't be very difficult to trace the author. Save a lot of time if you tell the truth. All right. Yes, I wrote them. She deserved it. A cheap little... Inspector, we lived together two years. When my husband died, I was left without any means of support. Tom Ferguson invited my son and I to live here. And about six months ago, he told us to leave. Just like that. To pack my bag and get out. I brought the boy up when my brother died... Don't you think I deserve better treatment? It's not for me to judge, Mrs. Hammond. Sending poison pen postcards can never be justified. But she didn't love Tom, Inspector. She was out for his money. Tom Ferguson inherited everything when his father died, yes? Yes. Do you possess a shotgun, Mrs. Hammond? Uh, no. Inspector, what would I want with a shotgun? You sure, Mrs. Hammond? Look, Inspector, I didn't shoot Tom. Ferguson was killed with a single-barrel shotgun. Find the gun, and I found the murderer. Do you mind if we look over the house, Mrs. Hammond? Is that necessary? I have a search warrant. Well, I suppose I can't stop you. You won't find a gun, yeah? But we did. Single-barreled shotgun. Slaw of an old Victorian roll-top desk. We found a package of cartridges, identical with the one discovered at the scene of the crime. In another drawer... We found a pile of unused postcards, replicas of those received by Evelyn Todd. The gun was subsequently checked for fingerprints. The only prints to be found were those of Mrs. Hammond. I decided to arrest her. Mrs. Hammond, I must warn you that anything you say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence against you. seen that the investigation was over, apart from some loose ends that had to be tied up. Mrs. Hammond for trial. One thing that became particularly important, the term Harold Ferguson's will. I visited Messrs. Carr and Bradshaw. Mr. Bradshaw himself received me, a donnish-looking old man with the air of a patient secretary bird. Good morning, Inspector Carr. Sit down, please. Cigarette? Uh, no, thanks. Mr. Bradshaw, I understand you drew up Mr. Harold Ferguson's last will. Well, that is correct. And in terms of that will, everything was left to Tom Ferguson? Uh, quite right, Inspector. Uh, Tom was an only child in the apple of his father's eye. Yes. The estate and all monies accruing were left to him in perpetuity. But if he didn't marry... Then the estate would pass to his nephew, Robert Hammond, on the condition that he should marry. Yeah. In the event of Tom's death before Robert was 21, the estate was to be held in trust until the latter became of age. And to take it to its logical conclusion, if Robert died, then the estate would have passed on to Mrs. Hammond. Oh, no, not at all, Inspector. What? Are there any other relations? Yes, one. It seems that young Ted Flynn is a distant cousin of the Fergusons on his mother's side. Both the parents are dead, poor boy. And in the event of Robert's death, 
Harold Ferguson expressed a wish that everything should go to him. I see. That must have been one in the eye for Mrs. Hammond. It was, Inspector, as you put it, uh, one in the eye for the poor woman. She was quite upset about it. Tried to get the will altered after Harold's death. In her favor, of course. But she didn't succeed. And Mrs. Hammond, as it turned out, stood to gain nothing except through her son. Correct, Inspector. There was no love lost between Harold and his sister. Temperamentally, they were poles apart. Huh? Harold was a swashbuckler, an adventurer with a lust for life. Puritanical Mrs. Hammond thoroughly disapproved of him. Hmm. You knew him well? Oh, knew him and liked him. In fact, over the years, I got to know the whole family. I always prided myself on judgment of character, Inspector. How did Mrs. Hammond get on with her nephew, Tom? Quite well until recently. Trouble over Tom's impending marriage. Mrs. Hammond would, of course, have to move out. Yes, yes, I know. Tell me, Mr. Bradshaw, was the will signed and witnessed in the presence of all concerned? Yes, yes. Old Ferguson called them all together in this very room. I see. So they were all acquainted with the terms of the will? Quite so, Inspector. Well, thank you. I'm most grateful for all your help. Yet as I stepped out of Mr. Bradshaw's office, I felt distinctly uneasy. I had considered the case as a closed book. It had all been so easy. Too easy. And I now had the disconcerting feeling that I was being led by the nose. There were several who had a motive for the murder. The longer I thought, the unhappier I became. Mrs. Hammond's motive for killing her nephew was that her son would inherit. But all the evidence showed that her animosity was directed against Evelyn Todd, not against Tom Ferguson. After all, she brought the boy up. No. There was something wrong somewhere. If only I could put my finger on it. I went in search of Sergeant Barnes. Got a car handy, Sergeant? Yes, sir. Where do you want to go? Uh, to the home of Mr. Ted Flynn. So, everything is over by the show, then, is it, Inspector? Not quite, Mr. Flynn. Still one or two things to check. Uh, you say that on Saturday night, the night Mr. Ferguson was shot, you left the Todd's farm at a quarter to twelve... Walked back with Ferguson to Greyston. You left him at the gate, continued on. When you heard the shot, you ran back, and Ferguson was unconscious in the road. That's about it. Now, think carefully, Mr. Flynn. Is there anything else that struck you at the time? Anything, however trivial? Nothing at all, Inspector. Or you've told you everything I know. Hmm. Did you see Tom Ferguson Saturday morning or afternoon? As a matter of fact, I did, Inspector. He popped round about 11 o'clock. Mrs. Hammond and Robert were on their way out to do some shopping in town. Tom was in the garage fixing a plough. I gave a man for about an hour and then I left. Mrs. Hammond and her son not returned? Not that I know of. Thank you, Mr. Flynn. You've been most helpful. I'd be unhappy task to call on her son. I'm sorry to disturb you, Mr. Hammond. I... Well, get it over, Inspector. You've arrested my mother for murder. What more do you want? Mr. Hammond, I'm only doing my duty. And I promise you I don't like it any more than you do. Well, please come to the point. Do you want to arrest me, too? No, I don't. I want to ask you a few brief questions. Well, last Saturday morning, Mr. Flynn came to see your cousin. You were on your way to town, I understand. What's this got to do with the price of eggs? Please, Mr. Hammond, just answer my question. Yes, he did come round. Aunt Miss was going out of the front door. Did he say anything to you? Not that I can remember. Oh, yes. 
He said to borrow Tom's golf clubs. And that was all? Look, Inspector, Ted Flynn didn't get on very well with Mother and I. He was Tom's friend, not ours. I told him Tom was in the garage, and that was all. Thank you. Now, did you see Mr. Flynn again? What is all this? I've told you he wasn't exactly a bosom friend of mine. Please be patient. I've nearly finished. Did you see him again? No, I didn't. Thank you. Now, one last thing, Mr. Hammond. What time did you hear of your cousin's death? In the early hours of Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, Ted phoned, told us what had happened. What did he say? Well, he said that although he had identified the body, the police would require my mother or me to make an official identification. Did you? Yes, we went down to the mortuary on Sunday morning. That's really all I can tell you, Inspector. Now, if you don't mind... Now, just before I go, I'd like to look over the house once again. I'm looking for something. I sincerely hope to find it. I did. I found what I was looking for. It was in Tom Ferguson's study. I now knew who had killed him. Sergeant Barnes and I raced back to police headquarters in Dewhurst. Sergeant, issue a writ to have Mrs. Hammond released immediately and then have a car outside the front door. Have you ever got a gun? Yes, sir. All right, now get cracking. We've just one more call to make. We're calling on Edward Flynn. Edward Flynn, I'm arresting you for the murder of Thomas Ferguson. I must warn you that anything you say may be used in evidence against you. Arresting me? Nonsense. Exactly on what ground? I'll tell you. You planned to kill Tom Ferguson a long time ago, but you had to wait for the right moment. About three months ago, Mrs. Hammond started writing poison pen postcards to Evelyn Todd. When Tom found out, he was furious. Knowing this and knowing that Tom wanted the Hammonds to move from the house, you... What? And kill my best friend because I wanted Tom to evict his aunt? I haven't finished yet. There's the will. You were present when it was signed. You knew that with Tom Ferguson and his cousin out of the way, the inheritance would be yours. You must be out of your mind, Inspector. I would hardly have walked home with Tom carrying a shotgun under my arm. And that's why you were so fiendishly clever. You planted that shotgun already loaded behind the hedge on Saturday morning or afternoon. What did I do, Inspector? Jump over the edge and say, hang on a moment, Tom. Hold still, I want to shoot you. Not a bit of it. When you left the Todd farm, you told Tom you were in a hurry to get home. You then said goodnight and ran on ahead. You had ample time to position yourself behind the hole you made that day. You shot him as he came up to the gate and then sprinted home, hiding the gun, and phoned for an ambulance. Although he wasn't dead, luckily enough for you, he died on the way to hospital. Inspector Carr, this is crazy. The gun didn't even belong to me. What do you think I did? Strolled over to Greyston and placed it under the mattress? Who told you it was under the mattress? Uh, why, uh, Robert, I think. Robert, eh? He knew because Mrs. Hammond had found the gun and questioned her son about it. But he swears that the only conversation he has had with you is when you telephoned him with the grim news that Tom was dead. And that was before you had time to return the gun. Inspector, you can't prove anything. Can't I? Edward Flynn, I'm arresting you on a charge of murder. You sure you got the right one, sir? <laughs> Sergeant, I'm as sure as I'm standing here. Well, don't look so worried, Sergeant. Well, I can't help it, sir. Why didn't Mrs. Ammon say anything when you arrested her? She didn't deny her guilt. Because she thought that her son had killed Ferguson. Oh. What else could she think when I found the gun under the mattress? Or you did, to be more accurate. She's got a lot of courage, that woman. She must love her son dearly. 
Oh, come on, Sergeant. Now what's troubling you? Well, I... I still don't know how you tumbled Flynn. <laughs> don't you? You should. And so should you, listeners. Do you know what clue convinced me that Flynn was the killer? Not sure? Well, listen to the commercial, and I'll be back to tell you. Well, what was the clue? After all, there were three suspects, Mrs. Hammond, her son, and Edward Flynn. But what made me so sure that Flynn was the murderer? Well, it was this. If you remember, I asked Robert Hammond if Flynn had said anything to him on Saturday morning. He replied... Not that I can remember. Oh, yes. He said something about coming to borrow Tom's golf clubs. Tom's golf clubs. That explained everything. What better place to house a shotgun than a golf club bag? Tom readily agreed to lend him them. And it would have been easy for Flynn to drop the shotgun inside while Ferguson was working in the garage. As Tom's best friend, he obviously knew where to find it. My suspicions were confirmed when Robert said that he and his mother had gone down on Sunday morning to identify the body, a perfect opportunity to return the clubs and deposit the gun under the mattress, hoping that mother and son would be arrested for the crime so that the inheritance would then be his, Ted Flynn's. That was what I was looking for in Tom Ferguson's study. The golf club bag. Oh, the moral of the story? If you must lend your golf clubs to a friend, make sure he's shooting for a birdie, not a body. Good night. The Epic Casebook was produced by Michael Silver for the makers of Epic Pure Sunflower Oil, Maple Margarine, Yum Yum Peanut Butter, and Niblet's Cheese Twists, with Hugh Ross as Inspector Carr. Listen again next Thursday night at 9.30 to another exciting story from our Epic Casebook. Case closed for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more from Let George Do It, the Epic Case Book, past episodes of Case Closed, and thousands of other old-time radio episodes at relicradio.com. You'll also find our donate button there and our shoutcast stream. If you'd like to help support this and all the shows, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on that donate link. It's how this is all made possible. My thanks, as always, to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next week with another hour of Case Closed. Case Closed.